we are, as a church, constantly trying to be transformed people. Like, if we just keep coming to church and there's never any change in us... Now, the Bible says that's going to be true for a lot of folks that are hanging around the kingdom, okay? But he, the Bible also teaches, in fact, Jesus teaches that for a percentage of people, they're going to get this enough that something's going to happen within them. New life will come and they'll be changed. And so one of the things as leaders that we're trying to do is figure out ways that we can partner with the Holy Spirit to grow, to grow folks, including ourselves, including your pastor. And so the way really it's been on my heart is to try to go through four things. Um, to do what Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And so at Mendham, we've looked at those four things and we've said, all right, well, how do you love God with your heart? Well, you need to take everything you know and you need to move it out of your head and, and put it in your heart. And so the last four weeks, we spent time working through Wonder Life together, right? Really looking at Psalm 139 and what those, what those things that David discovered about God and himself mean. How that can change our heart. The other thing we need to do is we need to spend time in the scriptures. Because otherwise, you could be worshiping a God of your own invention. The Bible says of itself that it, is, it has power to change your soul. And so we need to be spending time looking at that, studying the Word of God. We're going to start looking at That's our new series is on Ephesians today. And then we talk about serving God uh, with our mind. That's practical things. You know, that's, that's why we talk about marriage and parenting, things like that. And you all know we did the elephant in the family room last year. And then we need to be doing things with our strength. That's what we're doing in Guatemala. That's what we're doing with Grace House guests, right? Um, trying to actually use all of this. To not just be hearers of the words, but doers of the words. Here's what I want you to do. Because we're moving into a time where we're going to be studying the scriptures. We're, we're bringing so many folks in. Well, we're not doing anything. The Lord is bringing so many folks to us. We want to be good shepherds. I, I want to be a good shepherd to you. And I know a lot of folks from different faith backgrounds have had very limited um, time in, in the Bible and with the Bible. Um, I get that because when I first came to know God, I had very li limited knowledge of the Bible. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning. Remember that guy that used to be at Monday Night Football Games with the colored hair and the John 3.16 sign? I was always thinking about that this morning. I remember watching that and going, I wonder what that means. I didn't even know there was a book of John. Right? Like, I didn't have the, I didn't get it. And so, uh, what I want to do as a shepherd is, is make sure that I make available, that we as leaders make available to you pathways so that you can self-disciple and self-feed. Because coming to church once on a Sunday is not going to do it. You're not going to grow that much. So here's what I want to do. This is the first and only time you're ever going to hear me say this for the rest of your lives. I want you to take out your phone. Go ahead, get it out. And as you get it out, I want to introduce you to a concept. Um, when I first became a believer and I first started following God, um, I would look at the Bible and it made, it made like no sense to me often. I'd read it, but I didn't really get it. And so I went out, somebody said, well, you need to get a study Bible. I didn't know anything about Bible, so I went out and got an NIV study Bible. And I just came across it about two weeks ago, we were cleaning some stuff out. Because now I'm a pastor, so I have like a, a big official thick leather Bible, so I look spiritual, right? But my original one was just like a paper NIV study Bible. And uh, I ordered a bunch of them because I want you to have one if you don't have one. And so uh, the shipping, it didn't get here today, but it'll be here next week. So if you don't have a Bible with like good study notes in it that can help you understand the scriptures, you can pick one up for a cost at the Welcome Center next Sunday. They'll be out there for you. But I realize I'm an old man and people don't necessarily read things on paper anymore. 
So here's what I want you to do. Uh, there, I want you to, to open up your web browser, and I want you to go to www, which you don't even need to put in anymore, and that shows you I'm old too, um, bible.com, bible.com, slash, or a backslash, I guess it is. It's up here behind me probably by now. There it is. Bible.com on the bottom, slash app. If you will go to that, some of you might have this on your phone already or your tablet. If you will go to that, you can uh, download what is called the YouVersion Bible app. I want you to do this, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. In this YouVersion Bible app, there are 1,254 different versions, translations, of the Bible in 909 languages. It has audio Bibles, so you can listen to the Word of God in your car as you're driving. We're going to be studying Ephesians. You could be listening to Ephesians during the week. Um, it has 800 Bible reading plans on specific topics, portions of the Bible, devotionals. There's a children's version you can download. If you want to read the scriptures with your kids, there's a children's version you can download. This is the world's most popular Bible program for mobile phones. It is completely free. And it has been downloaded, are you ready for this? It has been downloaded over 200 million times. This is the power of the Word of God. And so here, here's why I want you to do that, why I want you to download it, or I want you to get a, a study Bible next week. I want you to join me. I'm hoping many of you will take me on a little challenge. Because the Scripture says it has the power to change your life. It's not just, it's not just dots and scribbles on a piece of paper. There's power in these words, not just in the penmanship, okay? So we have to get these words into our hearts, not just into our minds. So I'm going to ask if you would join with me in Ephesians over these weeks as we're going through it, prior to Christmas time. I'm going to ask if just for 15 minutes, five times during the week, maybe Monday to Friday, maybe you skip a day, you make it up on the weekends, just five times, 15 minutes a week, if you would go through Ephesians with me. Grab a, a chair, go off by yourself in your room, just get a cup of coffee, and just sit with the Word of God, and I'm going to explain it during the week, and then I want you to meditate on it during the week. All right? I mean, I gave you, I just gave you a free Bible, right? So you kind of owe me. All right. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to kick off um, this latest study in the book of Ephesians, next to the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans. He wrote, many of you know, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Next to the, the book of Romans and the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is probably the most influential um, epistle, which is what these letters are called, in the New Testament. The book of Ephesians has been called, let me give you some quotes about it, the divinest composition, these are some pretty lofty quotes, okay? The divinest composition of man, the distilled essence of the Christian religion, and the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of the Christian faith. That should make you think, I should probably read this. It's not all that long. It's only a few chapters. You'll see as we go through it. But if you would just sit and meditate with me during the week, five times a week, 15 minutes a day, it's that important. But here's the problem, and this is why I want you, I want you to come to church, and I want, I want you to let me talk to you about these scriptures. Because if you just read them, if you just sit down and read them, and you, you read them as if they're just some textbook, you could miss something really important here. Because in this book... In this book, God is, through, the, through Paul, through, through the inspiration of Paul, God is writing a letter to his adopted children, to his adopted sons and daughters. All of you know, in the book of John, right, 
It's a very famous chapter in John. In fact, I told you John 3, 16. Okay, a little earlier in the book of John in chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, a religious guy, comes to Jesus. And he has a question in his heart. It's no different than most questions that all of us have had over time. It's probably the same question everybody ever born has had, which is, Jesus, how do I go to heaven when I die? Now, Jesus knows the question's coming, and he does what he always does. He answers the question before the guy even asks it. It went something like this. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you've come from God. Nobody can do the things you're doing unless God's with them. Jesus looks at him and goes, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there is probably no more misunderstood um, couple of sentences in the Bible than that. Uh, I remember when I first started to become serious about Jesus, um, I went home and I was telling my mom and dad about um, Jesus. And like, I remember saying to my mom at one time, is Jesus all you ever think about? And my mom was like, no, what's happening to you? And, uh, and at one point, uh, um, I don't know, one of my relatives that loved me but didn't really understand what was going just said, you're not going to become one of those born-againers, are you? Because there's this thing that built up around those words. Here's what Jesus meant when he said those words, okay? I'm just going to give you this in two seconds, just so you know, because this is the topic for today. But what Jesus was saying is, you were born detached from the only source of life that there is. Life comes from, from a relationship with God. And you can be reborn, you can be reconnected to God through faith in Jesus. If you remember during the summer a couple years ago, we had those two fig trees, and I took the chainsaw out, and I cut the root of one, and we watched what happened over the summer, right? And this one tree, it just produced fruit, produced fruit, produced fruit because it was abiding in the root. This other one that had been cut off just withered and died. And we did fun things like what we try to do at church sometimes, right? We don't really connect to Jesus, but we spray paint it green and we hang fake fruit on it, right? But Jesus says, here's the deal. If you want the life that goes on and on and on and goes to be with God, that is the life that comes as you reconnect, as you are reborn with the Spirit of God. It's a profound teaching. It's a beautiful truth. Here's the problem. There's just one problem I want to make aware of. It's not the whole truth. It's not the whole story. Because it's even better than that. It's, even, it's, it's much better than that, actually. I, I have several friends. Some of you are in the room right now. I, I have a family member who right now is going through a process, uh, and they know the joy of the process about which I'm about to speak. You, they could, you guys, many of you could do a better job describing this. But there is another way, a deeply profound and beautiful way for a father or a mother to have a child than, near, than merely birthing the child. And the joy of which I'm speaking is the joy of adoption. The, the incredible, powerful story of not merely conceiving and birthing a child, but actually choosing, choosing a child and, and willfully taking the child unto oneself. I have a friend who's adopted uh, a few kids, and they celebrate the child's birthday every year, but everybody has a birthday. This child has another day where there's another even bigger party. It's called Chosen Day. And it's the day that mommy and daddy goes, today we celebrate because this is the day we chose you. 
And while the, the Old Testament speaks very little of the concept of adoption, this metaphor, we talk about being born again, and that is a deep, profound truth. We must be born of this new spirit. But there is an even deeper metaphor in the scripture for what happens to us when we choose to give our lives over to Jesus Christ. And Paul writes about it. Most of the time he's writing about it from a Roman prison in chains. And he starts in this letter to this church at Ephesus. He starts the same way, in chains, in prison. And he says, before I get on to this letter, before I get past verse 3, I need you guys to understand something. He says, not only if you follow Jesus have you been born again in your spirit, have you connected to the only source of life there really is, he says, you also got picked. You got chosen. Here's how Paul tries to teach the church in Ephesians. It's so important to him. He says it right in chapter 1, in the third verse, kind of right after the greetings. He says, church, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. This language in the first century would have blown people's mind. He chose you to adopt you as his own son and daughter through Jesus Christ. It was his pleasure. It was his will. Oh, Paul says to Paul, because Paul gets it, Paul goes to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one that he loves. Here's why I want you to join with me 15 minutes a day, five days a week. Because if you just read this like you're reading a textbook, you'll miss it. These three verses have such power to unlock within you a truth that will change so much in your life. If, if, you, if we could come to understand it together, and we would pray over it together and reflect on it and meditate it. Paul opens this letter to Ephesians with this truth. But Paul knew this is something that the church needed to know everywhere. It was so deep and so profound. So he doesn't write it just to the Ephesians. He, has, he, decide, he writes a letter to another church in Galatia called Galatians. And tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, remember, people have been waiting for a Messiah for centuries. They hadn't heard from God in hundreds of years. When the fullness of time had come, at just the right time, God sent forth his Son... Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And, and he says, because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, and it now cries out, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but you're a son. And if you're a son, if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. It's not just there. Paul is maybe the, the great Christian treatise of all time, Romans. Paul says something to the Romans, too. Paul would say, don't rush by this. It's very important. Paul would say, for all who are led by the Spirit, this is what he wrote to the church at Rome, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into being afraid of fear. You received the spirit, here it is again, of adoption. You're adopted. God's adopting you as sons, and of course, implicitly daughters. And this spirit, once we become, once we understand who we are as sons, it cries out within us, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. We're heirs of God. We're fellow heirs. We're co-heirs. We're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So here, here, this is so important. I want to give you some foundational truth about this, right? Here's foundational truth number one. It was not enough for God to birth you. It's not enough to God to just birth me with a new spirit. Over and over again, it's imperative for you and I to understand that you have not just been born again. You got picked. You were chosen. You are the chosen sons and daughters of the Most High King. I have friends and family members that have gone through, or or Joan's brother is adopting a little girl right now, so my brother-in-law is adopting a, a little girl. There's a lot that we can learn from looking at what our friends who have gone through this process. Anybody, if, you, if you've adopted a child or you know somebody that's adopted a child, raise your hand for a second just so I can see. See, a lot of you, right? And so there's something to be learned about the adoption process that I think will give us so, some understanding about this scripture at a new level. So what I want to do is I want to share with you, like my friends do on Chosen Day, the story of your adoption. I want you to know it and appreciate it. We should probably celebrate it. We should have a certificate of it. So here's the first thing that you should put on your adoption certificate. Maybe we'll hand them out at the end of of the study. You You can reflect on it. Here's the first thing that everybody that's ever adopted a baby quickly comes to understand. It's this. Adoption is costly. It costs a lot of money to adopt a kid. If you look back at what Paul said to the the Galatians, he goes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so we might receive adoption as sons. The scripture says Jesus, just like you and I, everyone ever born was born under the law. When Paul says that, what he's saying is, you were born, Jesus was born, all of us were born accountable to the law. Things like the Ten Commandments. By the time Jesus was born, those commandments had grown to over 600. And so Paul is saying, Jesus, you, I, the nation of Israel, all of us born into a world that is under the law, that owes accountability to the law. Now, Scripture also teaches in many places that God has a law, and we have broken it. Now, you might not be a student of the Bible, and maybe you don't even have any interest in in the things of God. Maybe somebody dragged you in here this morning, and you're going, dude, I didn't break anybody's law. I don't know the law. But as the policemen on Route 80 have told me on several occasions when I said I didn't realize the speed limit was 55, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Because here's the deal. Not only do we not keep God's law well, if you're honest, okay, let's just be honest. If we, we don't just keep God's law. We don't just break God's law. We break our, we're terrible about keeping our own laws. About 10 weeks from now, it's going to be December 31st. Oh, come January 1st, everything's going to be different, isn't it, people? You're going to be a much thinner lot, right? You're going to eat better. better pay, you'll be better parents. You're going to finally go see that marriage counselor that you know you should have seen all these years. Everything's going to change. How good are you keeping in the law? Not that good. We break our own laws all the time. I mean, there's painful laws we break, too. We break marriage laws, break honesty laws, 
There's something in us, in the human condition, that doesn't like to do. In fact, I, I've shown you a study this in, in, on this in the past, right? Uh, if once you tell a kid, a kid has no interest in doing something until you tell him not to do it, and then he does it, there is something innate in the human condition which says, don't tell me what to do. And if you tell me what to do, I'm going to break it. Here's the truth about a law. You see it in the world, and it's true in the spiritual sense. When you break the law, you create a new relationship with the one who gave the law. Your kids do this, right? You, you give them the law, be home at 10. And when they come home at 12, something changed in the relationship. Because now it became a little bit of move from mom and dad to debt and debtor. You owe a debt to me because you broke the law. And now there will be some commensurate punishment in this relationship. Even if you don't agree with the law. See, I live in Long Valley. Anybody ever drive down Northright Road from the top of Long Valley to the bottom of Long Valley? Does anybody here work for Long Valley? <laughs> because some knucklehead somewhere, we'll, we'll use the first service when I didn't say that for the tape, uh, he decided that it would be good to lower the speed limit coming down Northright to 30 miles an hour. Have, has anybody ever tried to maintain 30 miles an hour coming down Northright Road? I mean, you almost have to stand on the brake pedal as you go down. I do not agree with this law. Unfortunately, in the same spot just about every time I come down the, the hill, there is an enforcer of that law that I don't agree with who really doesn't seem to care that I don't agree with it. And when he reminds me that the speed limit is no longer 35, but 30, me and that officer enter a new relationship. Actually, it's me and the town. <laughs> it's called debt and debtor. This relationship exists everywhere. It, it exists in our jobs, in our homes, with our bosses, with our kids, with your parents. Laws get established, and we break them, and, and the, the reality is we get into something where there's somebody that owes you something. See, what Paul says exists here exists everywhere. The Bible teaches that the same dynamic is at work with God, that a debt-debtor relationship has been created by our inability to keep the law. So Paul says God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, just like you and I, to redeem those, to redeem those who were under the law. He uses a financial term. You see, let me, you have to know this. You're, you were expensive. Adoption costs a lot of money. Birth is kind of cheap sometimes. Adoptions cost a lot of money. He uses a financial term. Paul says that you've been redeemed, meaning that you've been bought back. My grandmother, anybody remember those H&M green stamps? I'm aging myself now. My grandmother, when I was a kid, I'd go to her house, and we'd go to a store, and she'd have this book, and when she checked out at Acme across the street, they'd give her a strip of these stamps, and she'd stick them in, I'm, you know, lick her, stick them in the book, and I'd be going, Graham, what, are you, what is that? She goes, these are green stamps. And I said, what are you going to do with them? She goes, after I get enough of them, I can redeem them. And I said, what do you mean, what does that mean? She goes, I can exchange it for something of value. The, the dictionary says, you know, that redeeming means to gain or regain, church, to regain possession of something in exchange for payment. 
This is the gospel. That when Jesus died, it was the payment for the sin, for the debt that had been created. A debt that we couldn't pay back. We've all had debts we can't pay back, right? You ever remember some of the things you said to your mother when you were 16? I can't get some of those things back. We can't always go back and undo the past. But here's the deal. Through Jesus Christ, we have been, our past has been redeemed, paid for, purchased back, brought and so principle number one here is your, your adoption is this. Adoptions cost a lot of money. In the United States of America, if you try to adopt a baby through a nonprofit agency, it generally costs somewhere between twenty-five dollars and $40,000. In the heavenly realm, in the battle for your souls, the cost was a lot more than that. To the church at Galatia in chapter 3, Paul says this. You want to know what the cost was? Here was the cost of your adoption. Christ redeemed, Christ brought us back from the curse of the law by becoming himself a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God's great desire to adopt you cost him his son, and he willingly paid it. Adoptions are costly. And so, implicitly, you must be worth an awful lot to God. So adoptions are costly. Here's the second thing that's kind of interesting about adoptions. Adoptions, before they, had, they do anything else, before there's any kind of relational change when it comes to an adoption, the first thing that happens with an adoption is your legal status has changed. In Galatians 4, um, in 4 through 6, as he gets into verse 6, Paul says, so we've received adoption as sons, and because you are sons. In other words, Paul's saying, right now, I don't know how you feel, but for those of you who have made a decision, I'm now changing my old life out for my new life. I am giving my life, my heart, my mind, my soul to Jesus, and I'm going to follow him. You, it doesn't matter how you feel, you are now legally sons. And this was, a, uh, there were legal realities. My, my brother-in-law is, is trying to adopt this little baby through the foster care system. He's in court like once a month. He's got to get lawyers involved in the process. And so what happens in, in this proceeding that God is talking about, he, he's satisfying his just nature by Jesus' sacrifice, and as a result, your legal status before God changes. You no longer are debtor. Your son, your daughter. That means that the status of being a son legally preceded the experience of the Spirit coming to give us maybe the affections that we might have as a son. We are legally sons before we sometimes experience the joy of sonship. You guys get that? So it is with adopting children today, right? The legal transactions precede and undergird the growth of a family feeling. You may not feel it, but based on the law, here's what God says. If you've chosen to lay down your life and to follow Jesus Christ, you, I don't care how you feel, you are an adopted son or daughter of Jesus Christ, of the Most High God. But then something happens, because it's not just, it's, it's not just a legal thing. Watch what happens. Step three, in your story, this is part of your story. Once adopted, it gives you a spirit of sonship with God. Paul says to the church at Galatia, 
in, in 4 verse 6, because you're sons, God has now sent the spirit of sonship, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, and it cries out, Abba, Father. Again, in Romans, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter uh, 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul says this is not, and this is where we mess this up sometimes because we're real good at theology. Paul says this is not just a legal deal. If you think that God is all that interested in the legal deal, you're missing out on something. Of course he's just. But Paul says it's not just a legal deal. Because you're sons and daughters, God has now given you the spirit of a son. He's put it in your heart so that your heart begins to cry, Abba, Father. You are now related to God. The Holy Spirit has inhabited in your heart. You are connected not just legally now, but relationally. And God has invited you, men and women, he has invited you to no longer be in a debt-debtor relationship, but he is calling you into a father, son, and daughter relationship. This is interesting. I know some of you know that word Abba, what it means there. It's kind of strange. You ever wonder, what, what? Why is that not an English word there? Why does it say Abba still? All the other words were translated, but it says Abba, Father. The reason is because when they were translating the, the, the scripture, the Aramaic word, which is what they had there, it means daddy. It's this deeply intimate, personal relationship. And when they were writing the New Testament in Greek, Church, listen to this. There was no Greek equivalent that would give the weight of intimacy to the word daddy. They had no way in their language to describe the depth of the love of the relationship. There was a term for father, but there was none for daddy. So they just said, we're just going to have to leave it as, as Abba. And they put father next to it to try to bring some meaning to it. That's how personal it was. This is the level of intimacy that you, you, are, you, you, through Jesus Christ, are no longer indebted to God. He wants you to call him daddy. See, God did not just change your legal standing. My, my friends, who have, at great cost, my brother-in-law, who at great, great cost is adopting his daughter, my friends who have brought home their sons, church, listen to me on this, they did not do so just to change their legal status. My brother-in-law is not going through everything he is going through with that little girl just to change its legal status. He is doing it because he wants to enter into a relationship of depth and meaning with that child. And what they would tell you, what everybody that is adopted would tell you, is that the moment all of the work and all of the money, the time it was made worthwhile was not when a certificate came in the mail, but when the little boy or girl looked up and said, Mommy or Daddy. Church, hear the heart of God for you. This is why the, the scripture keeps saying you're not just born again, that's important, but you're also adopted. This is the heart of God. The moment that made it all worthwhile for God was not just when your legal status was changed. It was not when a certificate came in the mail. It's the moment you look at him and say, Daddy. Adoption does something else. You heard it over and over, and it makes you an heir. 
You see it in, in Galatians. Uh, so you're no longer a slave, you're a son. If you're a son, you're an heir. You see it in Romans. We're all children of God. If we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Jesus. See, we read this story about adoption, and we, it strikes us one way, because when you hear adoption, what's the first thing that comes into your mind? Like a sweet little baby like that one right there. That's right, I'm talking about you. This cute little cherub, cuddly, smells nice some of the time. And, and so we, this is the thought. We read adoption. But Paul, the audience Paul wrote this letter to, they did not think baby when they heard adoption. That's because in the first century, there was no adoption of children. Unwanted children, I mean, this sounds bad, but this is the truth in many areas of the world we live in now. Unwanted children died. In fact, there, there was no real word or thought about adopting toddlers because it, it, they understood you wouldn't know how a toddler turned out. As I understand it, there was actually not even a, a word in the Jewish world at the time for adoption because they had a different way. So here, what did the audience understand? The audience didn't think baby. In the Roman world, adoption meant this, that rich people with lots of stuff and things and possessions and title and authority... They would look around at their kids and they would think to themselves, there's no way I'm leaving these kids this. They ain't that bright. They're not that smart. I don't think they're going to build a good enough legacy for me, so here's what I'm going to do. And I want you to know I'm available for you if this is what your heart is to. I'm going to go out and I'm going to find somebody that I can adopt and make them my heir. And he's going to have the rights to my kingdom. And so, follow what Paul's saying about God. God looks at you, not as a child. He looks at you fully aware of your adult form, of your sins, he, of your lack of cuteness and innocence. Because in the Roman world, you would have been passed over. You and I would have been passed over. In the Roman world, somebody would go, yeah, he, I, he, I, do you know what his past is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know what he's messed up? We're going to skip him. But Paul says when God looks at you, once the relationship changes from debt to debtor, he adopts you despite every one of your flaws. And incredibly enough, this is blowing the minds of first century people that would read it. He's saying to you, come, you're an heir, you're a joint heir with Jesus to my kingdom. You're a son of the king. You get the kingdom. Can you imagine? This is why... I've if you would just join with me for, for five days, 15 minutes a day, so you would just let that wash over your heart every morning before you go out to work and somebody tells you that you've got to earn your way to something or you've got to be good enough or you're not good enough, if you would just sit with that truth, I'm an adopted son or daughter, and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the last two and I'm going to wrap up, okay, because this is so important. Before we even get into Ephesians, you've got to read it as, a son, as somebody hearing it from your daddy. He says this, uh, number five, adoptions are planned. In Ephesians, in, in verse, chapter 1 and verse 4, 4 to 5, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Adoptions, I, I know folks who have adopted. They're not whimsical. Storks don't show up on, uh, on doorsteps. Adopted parents plan and plot, plot and strategize at great cost, and they go after the baby. 
They plan for it. They want it. I know parents that are waiting to adopt, praying to adopt, hoping for an adoption, and it all happened a long time before that baby was even born. Do you understand of the heart of your daddy for you? You were a thought of his long before you were born. He was planning and picking and choosing you at great cost. And lastly, there's this. Understand this, because it kind of goes with the concept of the cost. Adoptions save us from bad situations. I have some friends that were in the first service, and they adopted one of their kids from an Eastern European um, orphanage. Have any of you seen the conditions of Eastern European orphanages? It's rough. And they would tell me the stories about how, how they would go in there and what the kids would be lying in and what the rooms would look like. And they adopted that, that little boy, out of those circumstances. Paul next week reminds us of, of our circumstances. He says in Ephesians uh, chapter, two, or chapter 2, verse 3, he says, We, all of us, we were all by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, like we were in big trouble. We existed in a debt-debtor relationship. The Bible says that sin was our slave master, our owner, and it was destroying our lives here on earth, and it was going to destroy our eternity and keep us far from God. My brother-in-law is adopting this little girl. He, he, he's a Caucasian guy. He's, he's adopting this, this different race little baby, and, and this little baby was born at 14, addicted to, I think, crack or heroin, and was born on the floor of a bathroom stall. He's going to save that baby. But don't, don't mistake the fact that, that the sin of the world, the brokenness of the world, is going to leave an impact on that little girl. It's not all going to go away. She's going to carry with it some of the scars, some physical, some mental, some emotional. Had she been left in the situation, it would have destroyed her and her future and her hope. But here's what I've seen from my brother-in-law. Here's what I've seen from my other friends that have adopted. When given the situation, when they come to understand how the sin of the world, the brokenness of man, may have affected the child they were thinking of adopting. When they said to my brother-in-law, this child might have problems. She was born addicted to a heroin. My brother-in-law said, give me the baby anyway. And when God looks at you, broken and scarred and hurt by a world that couldn't have cared less for you, even though our sin has taken its toll on us, God looks at you and says, I want you anyway. And so as the band comes up, this is so, such a profound teaching. Yes, you must be born again, but you must understand that you have been adopted by God. And I don't know what you think you're worth to him. I'm not sure what you, you think of when you think of God how you, you relate to him or maybe how you, you speak to him and pray with him. Maybe you're still relating to God as, as a slave. Maybe you're still trying to barter with God. God, if, if, you, if I do this, God, would you do that? Maybe you're still trying to like, prove that you're a good person to him. 
Or maybe you just think he's a taskmaster and he just wants you to obey. But, but if you do, church, if you do, you're relating him to him in a wrong way. You're relating to him in a transactional way. You, you're relating to him like a, a debtor. God says, I have so much more for you than that. Don't come to me that way. Your debt has been paid. You have been redeemed. God said, it cost me a lot. Do you want to know what you're worth to me? Do you want to know how precious you are to me? Then look at the cross of my son and come to me and call me daddy. And so, Lord, may the truth of your scripture leap off the, the papyrus and into our hearts and help us to get comfortable with calling you daddy. Let's close and sing of these truths.